You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Welcome to all the things I talked. Happy this Saturday is gonna night. Be a show. Happy Saturday night. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. Yes, and this is the show, All the Things. Here we talk about all things related to God, life, and the Bible. Um, Helping yeah. us on the show today is the official teenager, Abby, Abigail Bontrager. Yes. Do we have the camera? There she is. Yes. Now, where is Bob the Button Pusher Bontrager? He's working. He's working. So this is all up to the teenager. Yes. This show should really be called All the Things Family. Yes. Because, <laughs> yes, it is All the Things Family. Oh, my gosh. How's your week been? It's been okay. I had a good time today. I went with a friend uh, to, we're taking a little class on the New Testament together mm-hmm. at a small seminary, and it's her first time taking that kind of thing. It's my third go around with uh, New Testament, but had a great time. Uh, got to listen to a wonderful uh, female theologian, Dr. Jeannie Constantinou. She teaches at um, down in San Diego okay, and, and at uh, Holy Cross. So she's up in our area doing a class and I've listened to her podcast for many years. So super fun to get to hear her lecture in person and always fun to hear from another female theologian. So yeah, it was a good day. Awesome. What about you? I had a really good day. I, well, today anyway, it was really good. Yeah. I got to hang out with Abby and um, let's see in the week. It was a really good week. Average. I feel like you're doing but big things. I, I, okay. If people so, only knew, here's what happened. I posted why I speak out against critical race theory and I got so much encouragement. It was like amazing. My heart felt so blessed. I was like, wow, I don't know if it's something or nothing, but I wasn't here last week. And in a conversation with a friend, she told me about an incident that happened with her son at school. And it was just laden with critical race theory. And her son is young and he was really hurt and damaged by a lot of the rhetoric and the words that were being said. And I was just like, oh. About him being white. Yeah, about him being white. Yeah. And um, I was I was really, really angry. And I think that, well, pray for me because I am still a work in progress. <laughs> but I can't imagine, you know, having to be a parent and your kids go through the normal day-to-day stuff. And now there's this and people are attacking him. And it's not like I'm bullying you because you're smart or I'm bullying you because you have new shoes. But I'm just I'm bullying. First of all, is just never okay. Let's put that out there. And I feel like, you know, being dogged and talked about because of the color of your skin. And like I said in my my post, no matter what color, adult or child, I would speak up. And I felt in order to really be true to my own convictions, something needed to be said. And I was getting um, I was getting questions like, oh, you spoke out about critical race theory at the Women in Apologetics Conference. Why are you doing that? I actually had someone ask me, why are you defending white people? And I was like, wow, OK, let's have this conversation. Yeah. And so it was a brief snippet. I mean, there's tons of reasons why it was like nine minutes, but it's been shared a ton and people have responded really well. And that just offered such confirmation to my heart because I've been really nervous about saying like, 
100, like, this is it. This is where my line is in the sand. And I'm so glad that I did. I felt like God just used that, the, the confirmation of others to remind me like, yes, you, you can step here. It'll be okay to step here. It might not be easy to step here, but I'm with you. And the support was just what I needed this week. That's awesome. We're already getting some comments in our friend. Rhyme His Songs is back. We haven't seen her in a while. Glad to see you here. She says, are we talking about stem cells? No, not exactly. We are going to talk in just a few minutes to Dr. Neil Shenvey, who is a critical theory explainer and scientist about, uh, in particular, we'll talk about critical theory in general, but talking about how critical theory is now coming into the STEM fields, which is science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine. And medicine. Yes. yes. And I also learned that there's an A in there. And oh. sometimes, sometimes people randomly put it in arts. And I'm like, oh, oh I, didn't I didn't know that. I, but I saw that. Me. I was like, yes. Okay. But before we get too deep into the show, Let's talk about what happened last week while I was gone because y'all had a party and I wasn't even here. I was like, what? All the questions came, all the good comments. I was like, oh, okay. I see how it is. Yeah. Well, our friend friend Jeremy's online right now and he was asking some great questions. Uh, Jeremy from Chicago. Hey, Jeremy. Glad to see you. He was asking some great questions last week. I did my best to try to field them and not um, damage anything. <laughs> I felt like the convert. I was watching. I literally was watching from the Oakland airport, and I thought the conversation went well. I loved um, just people's thoughts. Someone on here was mentioning about like capitalism or not capitalism, capital punishment. Yeah, and I was like, yes, you know, these are other things that we need to consider when we look into capital punishment. It was good. So there was the Just Mercy. We're referring to the segment we did on Just Mercy. The, um, the movie, the book. The movie and the book, Just yeah. Mercy. And then from there, we talked, and I say we because they were pre-recorded. Um, we talked about Kobe Bryant and his sudden passing. And his and, little bit about his faith. His faith yeah. and um, the fact that he had an amazing work ethic and things like that. And so... so Go catch the replay. It's yeah. on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. So if you missed our great conversation, go do that. And I also want to mention before we get Neil on here is a great way to support the show is to click on that share button. Yes. Share, share, share. That yes. is how you can best support the show. And we are live right now on YouTube. So if you want to jump on the chat box and interact with us, you can do that. And we'll be fielding uh, your questions as we go along uh, with Dr. Shenby. So, yes. Now, ooh, y'all. Okay. So you're okay. going to do the introduction? All right. So low key, I, I never get starstruck. I never, like I've met, I used to live like LA and close to Hollywood and stuff like that. And people just pop up. She knows famous I, people. That's what I she's saying. I never feel like I get starstruck. And yet... Dr. Neil Shindry, I feel like my heart is like, like fangirl syndrome. And I don't even know like where it's coming from. um, Okay. So now I I discovered Neil about a year ago on the, he was on a guest on the Elisa Childers podcast. Yes. My whole life changed after I heard the, why did it change? Because you and I have been having conversations and I was so lost. I couldn't figure out what you were talking about and all these terms and, and I listened to Neil on Elisa Childers' podcast. Light bulbs started going off in my head of, oh, 
this is what Monique's been talking about. It's something called critical theory. So I quickly sent the podcast out to a whole bunch of people. I said, you got to stop everything you're doing right now. Listen to this. And I tried to get Monique to listen to it for several months. <laughs> she was like, no, I'm not listening to that. And then she finally watched uh, Neil's video from the Defend conference. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, I, I think I like this. This is, this is something. So now she's all starstruck. But see, there was a little journey to get, get in there. <laughs> people, people. Everyone has an experience. That's right. And a story. That's right. Mine is a little different than hers, but you know. <laughs> but yeah, so through Dr. Shinvi, um, you met Pat Sawyer, Dr. Pat Sawyer, right? I actually, I called up, I emailed Neil. I direct messaged him on Twitter. <laughs> he was yes, so nice. Yes, we will stalk you, okay? Yeah. <laughs> there is it. We are not above a good stalking. So I just reached out to him and then I, I got Pat's name and then I got Pat's email and sent that to you. And then you kind of started talking to Pat. So it's been a great thing to just sort of build a little connection uh, with them because they've been a great support to you as you've been sort of coming out of critical race theory. Their conversations with you through email have just really been hugely supportive of helping you with data, helping you think through big questions. Mm -hmm. And they've really played a huge role in helping and helping shift that that narrative. Um, It's been super helpful and has given me some definitive lines to draw and say, okay, you know what? This, we don't cross over this with Christianity. Yeah. Like Christianity has to be first. Um, and looking at things like injustice, marginalized people, social justice, like all these hotbed or keywords that you hear in culture right now, how are we defining those things? What do they mean biblically? Like yeah. biblically, how do we apply these words? And um I just I, I think it's been very eye opening for me and also has given me some some ground to stand on where I felt like I would either speak out and use my voice and um, fight for the poor and things like that. Or, and social justice was the only way to do that. Or there was nothing. Yeah, you felt like. Well, if I'm not for critical race theory, can I still be against racism? Yeah. Like, how and, do we do and, that? And they, they, Neil and Pat have done such a great job of decoupling those things. Yes. That you could still speak out passionately against injustices and not fall into critical theory. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, well, you ready to get him on? Yes. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's fire up the machine. Oh, my gosh. We... <laughs> All right. Hi. Hey, Neil. That was quite the introduction. (laughs) Well, I'm honored. Thanks. Okay. So I didn't say this like in our little pre-talk, but yes, I am a fangirl. Like, and yes, like I pray for you. I know you're married. You have kids. So, you know, but I'm still like, it's Neil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There he is. I appreciate it. Well, okay. Well, let's, let's help people get to know you a little bit. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your background and, um, that sort of thing kind of before you got into the critical theory realm. Sure. I grew up in uh, Delaware. I have two great loving parents, uh, but I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, I, my, my future wife, Christina at Princeton in college, we went to graduate school together and uh, I became a Christian 
in graduate school at UC Berkeley shortly after I arrived. Uh, we got married a year later. Uh, I did a PhD in theoretical chemistry, totally, totally unrelated to critical theory. Uh, and that was not at all on my radar. I went to Yale for my postdoc, um, where Christina got uh, an MD at Yale Medical School. We moved to North Carolina about 10 years ago, and we have four kids. I quit my job at Duke about six years ago to homeschool our four kids. They're ages 10, 9, 7, and 5 right now. Wow, so that's, that's awesome. where I am. Yeah. Now, with all of that, how did you become interested in critical theory? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I became interested in apologetics at Yale um, through talking to some atheists online and realizing that, oh, I should really learn how to defend the Christian faith with reason, evidence, things like that. I should learn more about atheism. I should learn more about other religions. You know, why do I believe that Christianity is true? So I got really interested in apologetics. And I was always, not always, but when people would ask me to talk, they wanted to hear about science and faith and things that Krista, I'm sure, is familiar with, working for reasons to believe. But, um, but that, so that was what I did. And I, I did things like, or is the, is the Bible reliable? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Very standard fare for apologists. But about, I'm going to say two or three years ago, I began noticing that people were, <laughs> put it this way, they seemed less concerned about whether Christianity were true and more concerned about whether it was good or not, uh, whether it was morally good. And I began to see people, both Christian and non-Christian, embracing social justice. And for Christians, I assumed that meant that they wanted to apply biblical principles to justice and to our laws and to our institutions. And that's a very good thing. But then these same people, both you know, public figures and people I knew personally, would begin to drift theologically. In some cases, I mean, very seriously. We're not talking about you know, they, they became Presbyterians or something. We're talking about they would, in some cases, abandon Christianity altogether. They would become atheists. And I couldn't figure out why. I, I, I kind of got the sense that it was somehow related to progressivism, like some ideologies. But again, how do you go from saying, I want to fight racism and sexism, which I think we all want to fight, to saying that, well, I don't think that Jesus is the only path to God. Those seem very different to me, and yet I was seeing the same pattern play out repeatedly. So uh, that's, I was confused. Like I think a lot of people are. They, they see something's going on in the culture. They see something going on in the church, but they don't know what to call it. And then around that time... Uh, I, w I was following Jordan Peterson. I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I, I think some of what he says is good, some bad, but I saw it was, it was popular. And so I kind of was, was going to write some essays about him. And I watched a video of him talking about a book that he'd read called Race, Class, and Gender. Mm -hmm. And then a friend of mine sent me uh, and said, hey, watch this video and you should buy this book. It is really shocking. And the line that Peterson quoted was that the authors say that the idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a Western and masculine idea, one that we will challenge throughout this book. And so when I, when I heard that line, I was like, this, wait, what? So I had to read it. And so I read this book and I remember putting it down and saying, this is the most important book I've read in years. 
because I realized what was happening suddenly. I realized that people were not embracing a few new beliefs about politics. They were embracing a new worldview, a new religion. And that was gradually replacing their faith in Christianity, their, their trust in Christ. So that's why I got into this field. Uh, what, what this um, academic discipline is known as is critical theory. And it's really, it's very broad. We'll get into this later, but it's, it, it, there's a lot to learn. So I spent the last two years, maybe three years, just reading as much as I could get my hands on to learn more about the academic underpinnings of this movement, of this ideology. That's really fascinating. And a lot of our viewers are sort of familiar with critical theory because it's something that Monique and I talk about a lot in, on the show and in videos. But for those who are kind of just joining the conversation, maybe you can give us kind of some a basic definition, some some parameters of what critical theory is, because we hear these words like diversity and um Inclusion, inclusion or, or yeah. justice, yeah. marginalized. And like, all of those well, things are interconnected and woke, to, to, woke yeah, yeah. To, to this idea. So maybe just start us with a brief definition of critical theory. Oh, boy. OK, well, how many hours do you have? Because, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, this I think people. So saying, well, give me a concise definition of critical theory that everyone agrees on. It's sort of like saying, give me a concise definition of continental philosophy or, or feminism or biblical studies, right? It's like, you know, where, or science. Like, tell me about science. What, do you, what is science? It's, it's just a sprawling field. So I'll give you a just really short overview. So the consensus is that Karl Marx uh, introduced he was the first critical theorist. Now, he didn't use that term, but he was the origin point of modern critical theories. Now, not his economics. They don't draw heavily on uh, his ideas about capitalism and communism, but they draw very heavily on his ideas about power and about how power circulates through society to create systems of inequality. So that, that idea originated with Marx. And then from there, uh, the Frankfurt School was the, the group of sociologists and philosophers to coin the term critical theory to describe what they were doing. Now, they were trying to apply Marx's ideas more broadly, not just to economics, but also to culture. And along with the Frankfurt School, these are people that uh, they, they, they worked in Germany and later in the United States and Colombia during the 20s and 30s. Along with them, another important figure is Antonio Gramsci, who's a neo-Marxist uh, thinker who was actually jailed for a long time in Italy. So the Frankfurt School on one hand and Gramsci on the other hand are these two major uh, figures or, or groups that would have a huge impact later. And, but the thing is, people hear critical theory and sometimes they assume it just means the Frankfurt School. But that was 80 years ago. That's a long time ago. And since then, critical theory has spawned entire disciplines. So post-colonialism, critical legal studies, critical race theory, critical pedagogy, um, intersectional feminism. This, these are entire fields, whole departments in, in academia in some places that are, fall under the umbrella category of critical theory or critical social theory. There, there, there are lots of different versions. But, but I'd say that the common, the common factor Factors are critical theorists, critical social theorists want to understand how power uh, circulates within society to produce 
social injustices and inequalities. And they're also primarily, or, or there's, they're definitely concerned with how ideologies uh, justify the existence of social inequality. So they're, they can, they're concerned about power and oppression. They're seeking to liberate people from these systems which create oppression and inequality. And they focus on how ideologies, ideas that are enshrined within our culture and taken for granted actually justify these oppressive systems. So there, there you go. Is that, is that short and brief enough? That, that was short and brief enough. Yes, okay. that was that was good because um, I liked how it how you started with Marx and the Frankfurt School back then. But then it's evolved since then, especially going into um, like critical legal studies and things like that. And then it moves into Crenshaw and intersectionality and all of that. And we then and now we see what we have today with all of these different branches, including things like ableism and fat studies and, you know, all of these things of who is oppressing and who is being oppressed, who has the power, who doesn't have power. And the redistribution of power. Yeah. And, you know, I think that in Monique's, for those who are new, maybe just to share a thumbnail of your story is that you were a sociology major Mm -hmm. at Biola and got and learned about this idea and kind of walked down this path for 20 years. Yes. When we talk, when we talk about the the concept and the framework being in academia, that's where I always heard it. It wasn't, you know, not that it wasn't in culture, but that these were the things that we talked about at the table, you know, the power of whites and being oppressed and all of these things that was like dining room table talk or, you know, with your people within your community. And when I got to Biola and heard my professor saying, you know, this is what this is. White people are oppressive. You are an oppressed people group. Um, the introduction of different theories and critical, critical theory, it helped to give explanation to what we talked about at home or what we talked about in our community. And then it gave data and statistics for it. And we slapped Jesus on it and said, well, this must be the way to rectify what's happening. We need to take the, the, the power away from whites or um, we need to be speaking out specifically on behalf of the marginalized and the poor because that's what Jesus would do. It's the social justice gospel. We need to be about this. This is kingdom work. And the gospel is coupled with justice and with what you do to bring down, to bring down these systems of oppression and things like that. And so, yeah, it, it was all about, you know, this framework at Biola for me. Yeah. Can I interject one thing? I think people might be confused because they hear terms like oppression and they say, well, oppression's a Bible word, right? Jesus is described as oppressed and afflicted in Isaiah 53. So they hear oppression, they hear justice, and they think, well, these are biblical terms and God wants us to be on the side of the oppressed and to work for justice. I think it's entirely true, except you have to understand how these terms have been redefined by critical theorists. So I want you, and once you understand that, that they are using these terms in very different ways than the way the Bible uses these terms, then not only does their entire worldview make more sense, 
It also shows you why Christians cannot subscribe to these views. They just, it's totally incompatible with the way that the Bible thinks about reality. So let me just read two quotes here. Um, so one is uh, a quote from Iris Young, a very important essay called Five Faces of Oppression. Now she talks about how in the past, people used to define oppression as coercion, violence, cruelty, like an oppressive government, right? But here's what she writes in her essay. This is a very, very important essay. She writes, in its new usage, oppression designates the disadvantage and injustice some people suffer, not because a tyrannical power coerces them, but because of the everyday practices of a well-intentioned liberal society. Now think about that. What she's calling oppression is not about tyranny or coercion or violence or cruelty. It's about how these ideas and these systems that are, that are nice and liberal and well-intentioned, but they still reproduce disadvantages and power differentials. And that is oppression. And the word for this, uh, this sort of ideology that, that justifies imbalances and power differentials the word for that is hegemony or hegemonic power. So here's a, this is a quote from Sensoy and D'Angelo's book, Is Everyone Really Equal? They say, hegemony refers to the control of the ideology of society. The dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone. So now, okay, what does that mean? The dominant group is defined as the group whose ideology is enshrined in our common sense. So for example, White, whites are the dominant group and they impose their white ideology on everyone else, which we internalize, that justifies their own social control. Men are the dominant group because they have hegemonic power and they create this narrative about how men deserve to be in charge. Men are smarter and stronger and better at math. So they are also an oppressor group. Heterosexuals are an oppressor group because they say, oh, well, we have this heteronormative narrative that says that homosexuality is immoral, unnatural, whatever, and they impose their, idea their heterosexual ideology on the LGBTQ community, which is thereby oppressed. And there's a whole list of these. Well, one more quote here. So this is three quotes. Uh, but this, is, again, is from Sensoy and D'Angelo. Uh, they write, for every social group, there's an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, status, exceptionality, uh, religion, and nationality. So those are race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability. Those are, those are all categories that, that divide reality into oppressor groups and oppressed groups. And that's the way they, they view social reality in the U.S. And actually in every country, but in the U.S., those, those are the major categories. Wow, you know, um, listening to you right now, um, I want to remind or let our viewers know that in our show notes, we're going to put up, um, Neil has a pretty self-explanatory um, paper on intersectionality and what that looks like and who the dominant groups are and who are the oppressed groups and who are the border groups and things like that. So we're not having graphics tonight. Um, in the show, but we will have that there. And it's such a useful resource so that you can see firsthand and study like, oh, this is what Neil's talking about when he says, this is an oppressed group. This is an oppressor group. This group has hegemonic power. 
this group doesn't, who are on the fringes of it all. Um, so yes, because what you're saying is so important and um, needs to be understood clearly, especially in the current moment that we're in. I want to be clear. I, I don't say these things. I'm just reporting what critical theorists say. Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but yeah. So the, the the information that you're reporting, it's important for us to understand um, yeah. in this moment. Well, I want to get into this question about whether or not math is racist, because uh, mm -hmm. I saw an article recently to this effect. And then I went on Google and come to find out there's actually uh, quite a number of articles to this effect mm -hmm. of uh, yeah. with kind of bringing ideas of critical theory into math and incorporating those things. And it's something that I haven't heard a lot about. And so Monique and I thought it would be good since we have you on the show to take advantage of maybe focusing on, on that a bit. So um, tell us a, a little bit about what's happening where uh, critical theory is now coming into the realm of mathematics. Okay. So you have to, and so understanding the sort of the foundational assumptions of critical theory, or again, call it contemporary critical theory, this, this modern manifestation of critical theory that we're seeing in the culture today. And there are various names for it. People call it, you know, grievance studies. They call it uh, cultural Marxism. There, there are various names, uh, critical social justice, I prefer the term contemporary critical theory because we're, we're seeing it in contemporary culture being played out uh, in many places. Uh, but remember, they, they believe that dominant groups build these narratives or discourses uh, that justify their own superiority. That's how they maintain their power. They say, oh, you know, we're not, we're not biased. We have these universal objective truths about reality that, that show that we deserve to be in power. So people have begun to, okay, so, and, and the critical theorist's goal then is to dismantle those narratives. Those are false narratives. Those are, those are they're, they're bids for power under the guise of objectivity. People claim they're being neutral and objective and appealing to reason and evidence, but really they're just making a bid for their group's institutional power. So that's, a, that's the story critical theory tells. And then the, the job of the critical theorist is to expose these narratives as bids for power. And actually, they're, they're really just your own group's narratives. They're not universal at all. Now, we see that a lot in, you know, in these, like you said, the social sciences. But we're just now beginning to see people apply that same lens to things like math. And so, again, I didn't, I didn't, this is not what I specialize in. So I just read some of these papers recently. And it, it's, but it's once you understand the underlying ideas, it, it's so clear that this is, I mean, people say this is critical theory applied to math, but <laughs> that you understand a lot better where they're coming from. Um, so this is, a, this is actually a quote from a paper. Uh, it's entitled Rethinking, Teaching, and Learning Mathematics for Social Justice and from a Critical Race Theory Perspective. It's by Larnell, uh, Bullock, and Jett. It's in the, what journal is it in? Uh, I'll figure out where it is. From. I don't know where it's from, but um, it's in a peer-reviewed journal. And here's a quote from, this is a paper on how to apply critical race theory to mathematics education. And here's how they, it's one of the quotes in this paper. They say, whether inside or outside the school, mathematics is political. Mathematics teaching and learning are political acts 
connected to the preservation of privilege, the maintenance of oppression, and the capacity to see both clearly. So, uh, yeah, wait, what math and that, like two plus two equals four is political? And it, well, but remember, the, the, the storyline of critical theory is that people create these narratives that actually disguise bids for power or ways to justify their dominance. And so that's one part of it. And the other part of it is that the way that you teach also uh, is a way for you to so gain status and to show that you are the, uh, you're the dominant teacher imposing your narrative on the students. Uh, and so the Paulo, Paulo Freire, who is a very prominent critical pedagogy, uh, the father of critical pedagogy, basically, was very critical of this idea that you have this, uh, this banking model of education where the teacher, you know, just gives or deposits information in the brains of the students. He didn't like that because, again, you're reinforcing these cultural these hegemonic ideas in, that impose certain object, quote unquote, objective standards uh, and, and justify them. But we're seeing that now that now people are saying, yeah, math itself is in some ways justifying its privilege. <laughs> we'll get to that later. But someone said uh, that it's like whiteness, mm -hmm. just as whites try to justify why they deserve to be dominant in society. So do mathematicians try to justify why math is supposedly this privileged narrative that, well, it describes reality properly. And they're, they're questioning that. They're pushing back against that, that claim. I have, more, I have many more quotes here. Yes, <laughs> I am like, and I've read about it, and I, I am still confused on, on, how, um, on how math could be seen as being racist. But the idea that there is just this presupposed, I am, I am right, math is right, um, unquestioned things like that. I think that is how they liken it to whiteness. Like it's just yeah. the the go with it. This is what we're going with. Don't question it. Is that more or less along the the lines? Well, I think that let me try to find the quote from. There's a recent article in the. This is wild, but there's a blog at the American Mathematical Society. This is the official AMS blog. And there's a blog post entitled, Can Mathematics Be Anti-Racist? Yes, I read that. You read that? Yes. And so in that blog, he quotes another article. I don't find the quotes here. So I, I, yeah, this is it. Here's the quote. So he cites another, again, critical mathematics educator who does not have an advanced degree in math, which is not, not unusual. But let me read the quote from, this is from uh, Gutierrez, uh, from the paper why mathematics education was late to the black the backlash party the need for a revolution so this is a quote from that paper uh the author writes who gets credit for doing it in developing mathematics and who is seen as part of the mathematical community is generally viewed as white school mathematics curricula emphasizing terms like pythagorean theorem and pi perpetuate the perception that mathematics was largely developed by greeks and other europeans Perhaps more importantly, mathematics operates with unearned privilege in society, just like whiteness. So there's a long story there. Whiteness does not mean white skin to critical mm -hmm. race theorists. Whiteness is a system of racial dominance. Like the, it's an ideology. So whiteness is an ideology and a power structure that uh, invests white people with white privilege or unearned advantages. Right? That's what whiteness does. Mm -hmm. 
And this author is saying that in the same way, mathematics is like whiteness because it invests mathematicians with unearned privilege, right? You, oh, you know math. You must be very smart. Oh, you know math. You can solve these problems. You can get a good job. You can, here, here's some benefits that accrue to people who know math. So like whiteness, it gives you advantages. Now, one important question is, well, is that really unearned advantage? Right? Because if I spend a lot of time learning math, well, I've earned that, and math actually can do a lot of good in society. So maybe it's not really an unfair and oppressive system. Maybe it really is a universal language. Maybe it is getting at objective truth claims, but of course, that would kind of go against the grain in terms of seeing what uh, mathematics as a hegemonic discourse, right? As a, 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 you know, a way to impose your European white values on students or on other people. Now, one of the, uh, in another article I read, um, it talked about the tools that are actually being used to teach math. So mm-hmm. instead of a calculator or looking at geometry with just a triangle, how other cultures will use other tools to teach math. And because in the West, we don't use those tools necessarily, then that also um, encourages or perpetuates this idea of whiteness, this idea that this is what we use. We don't question it and we just keep going. I think I was just thinking about like, why don't we use an abacus, mm-hmm. right? Why do we use calculators? Because uh, calculators are a Western invention. And so we're, um, we, are we, are we somehow uh, exalting and foregrounding Western culture when we use a calculator rather than an abacus? Now, now most people would say, well, no, we use a calculator because it's faster and better than an abacus, right? But it, this is, this is so interesting. So the, remember critical theory, one of the main parts of critical theory is the idea that these hegemonic narratives are subtle and insidious. They're hard to recognize. So you, you, you know, you think that you're being objective and neutral. Of course you do. You think that, but you haven't achieved a liberatory consciousness yet. In other words, you haven't gotten awoke to the reality that you're just imbibing all of these, this white supremacy and male supremacy and the patriarchy and, and, you know, Eurocentrism. And so Critical theorists are, I won't say obsessed with, but they, 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 are, they are focused on excavating and unearthing these very subtle uh, narratives that you norm, that I, I won't be too snide here, but most normal people would not think it's Eurocentric to use a calculator. In fact, I'm pretty sure they use a lot of calculators in Asia right now and <laughs> all over the world because people realize, hey, this is a great tool. But critical theorists, the, the term is they problematize. They, they, they really want to problematize seemingly neutral and unobjectionable facets of our, of our culture or society or, or, or teaching because they want to see through that, that claim of neutrality to see the really dark and dirty uh, marks of oppression hiding beneath that, that, that nice looking veneer. Yes. And where they can't find it, I feel like they will make it up. Um, one of the well, you only, you only think that because you're still captive to the hegemonic discourses. Yes. You're not I, woke. I, I am not woke. I used to be woke and now I have become unwoke and I don't know. But I, one of the things you said was that, you know, normal people wouldn't think this way. And what I'm finding is that 
this is becoming more normative. It's it's a normalized way of thought. Like people are learning this in grade school. And, you know, so by the time that they become young adults, like Krista says, this is just the air that they breathe and the water that they swim in. There's really nothing wrong with this way of thought. And actually people who think different are the ones who are abnormal. Well, here's the interesting uh, thought experiment that maybe really put a, a pebble in someone's shoe. You can say, so you're saying that there are all these subtle, insidious, you know, narratives and these almost these world, these ideologies, these worldviews that we take for granted as just obvious and normal, but really they're, they're really bids for power and they create these huge inequalities and they're, yeah, yeah, totally. You say, well, at what point does critical theory itself become a hegemonic narrative? Right. At what point is everyone's thinking this way? Everyone's seeing all these deep and subtle forms of racism and sexism and heteronormativity and, and cisgender oppression. They're all seeing it everywhere. And you go to, and if that's happening all the time, wherever you ever class you take. And in fact, people being marginalized are the and, and I'm being a little bit snarky here, but the people being marginalized are the normal people who don't see racism and sexism and heteronormativity everywhere. If they're being marginalized and excluded and told that they're crazy and they're not seeing reality properly, hasn't critical theory itself become, on its own terms, an oppressive hegemonic discourse that must be dismantled? Now, of course, there are, there's a response to that that critical theorists will give, but, but I'm just pointing out that once you come to see that critical theory really is functioning as a worldview, it's functioning as a lens through which people see everything, and it's consuming Every field, you know, it's not going to stop at, you know, psychology and, and sociology. It, it's, it's, it's infiltrating mathematics and medicine and all these different fields that you, you would think there's no way you can, you can problematize math, but you can. Mm-hmm. Well, it's gradually becoming more and more of a hegemonic narrative. That's good. That That's really good. And it's important to think about, like, at what time or at what point do we become captive to the thing that we are trying to use as a tool to take captive the problems. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's exactly right. Uh, I, the answer that critical theorists would give is that, well, yes, they would say critical theory is in some ways a hegemonic narrative, but it is a non-oppressive hegemonic narrative, right? Because it's trying to equalize power. So in other words, other, oppress- other narratives are oppressive because they try to justify I- inequalities. In contrast, the goal of critical theory is to create equity, so where power is shared between all groups. So they might you twist their arm, they would say, well, yeah, okay, technically this is really functioning as this universal narrative, but, but, but it's different because we are working for social justice, and that is what makes our narrative acceptable. I think for me, the, and I'm probably way off as I'm the theologian in the room. But when one of the things that we talked about when I was in seminary and that I've talked some about with my colleagues is that the idea of mathematics and numbers is actually part of what J.P. Moreland calls the invisible furniture of the universe. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that is a reflection of the mind of God. Um to use the term of of uh, the Gospel John, it's it's the logos of God. It's a reflection 
of God's thoughts. It's to think God's thoughts after him. And so the idea that somehow math is racist from a theological standpoint in a classical historic Christian worldview standpoint strikes me as extremely peculiar because I mean, maybe this is my own conditioning as a theologian, but to think about the elegance of numbers is to actually think and reflect on and get insight into how, yeah, Yeah. you know, the mind of God and how, how he's created things and, you know, how we use calculus to calculate star formation, planet formation and other things. So I don't know. It's to me, this is such a contradistinction to the historic Christian worldview. I'm just wondering if, if, Oh yeah, no, that's exactly right. So I'll say two things. One is that, again, I don't think these people are saying a math is racist. What they're saying is that the way that we do math, mm-hmm. okay, we do math is shaped by our racist society, our sexist society, our patriarchal society, our heteronormative society. So the way we're doing math, because we are, we are doing math in a, in a, in a European white male Western way. And if, and to really, why? Because we live in a white racist patriarchal heteronormative society and so to do math properly is to include other non-european elements into our mathematics curriculum so now and I, so then you have to then they say well what exactly is racist about how we're teaching and the, and then there are a lot of answers there they can always and they'll find ways to problematize a lot of what is done it's so again this in some I, I don't want to be too snarky here but you can always problematize anything. I say that one of the hallmarks of critical theory is that you can problematize both A and not A, right? The law of non-contradiction says that, you know, something can't be A and not A, uh, but they, they will problematize both A and not A. For example, they'll say, uh, this one is a book I just read. A, a woman was describing how a, a black woman who's clearly heavily influenced by critical race theory, she was talking about how one of her white friends, I think a white boss came to her and said, hey, um, I I know there's a lot of racism in this organization, and I want to let you know that I am aware of that, and I really appreciate the struggle you must have to, you know, just to be here as a black woman. And so, so, and the the, the author said, well, you know, on the one hand, I appreciated that, that. On the other hand, she was asserting that she was a good white. She's not one of those people. She was trying to distance herself from her own racism. <laughs> so, but here's the thing. So if the, if her boss does say that she's, you know, she's aware of the racism, you know, in the organization, well, that's problematic because she's distancing herself from it. However, if her boss does not say that, well, that's problematic too, because then she's, oh, she's taking a blind eye to all the racism I have to deal with every day. What if the boss says, well, actually, no, I, I, I know there's racism out there. And I also abjectly confess that I, too, am racist. Well, then you can still say, yeah, and I bet you think you're, you're really proud of confessing your own racism, right? Because that makes you, again, a good white ally. <laughs> there's no end to it. You can never do things. You can never not problem. You can never be totally unproblematic. There is always a way to problematize everything. You can, and there are all these terms for it. You can declare it. Uh, performativity, performative allyship. It's a name for people who, who are saying that they want to be your ally and your fight against oppression. 
but again, the, the point is there's no end to it. The second thing I'll say is that when you say, well, isn't it strange to say that math is racist as a Christian because, or even that, but, but isn't that weird because isn't math something we reflects the mind of God? I would say it's far worse than that, Krista. You put your finger on a major problem. What is the Bible if not one long hegemonic discourse? It's a long story. It's a narrative that justifies God's complete goodness and sovereignty. It, that, that, that is, by death, but that is, and it says there's a right way and a wrong way to live. There, are, there is good and there is evil. There is God's law. And there's one story of religion. There's one story of morality. There's one story of gender. There's one story of all these different things. That is, to a critical theorist, absolutely unacceptable because you are, you are excluding all of these other narratives, all these other religions, and you're trying to impose your Christian worldview on reality. And they would want to dismantle and deconstruct that. But obviously, as Christians, we believe that is the actual true story of reality that is an objectively true universal narrative that everyone needs to accept. And again, that's not something you can do as a critical theorist. Um, one of our viewers, Jeremy, uh, has a comment here. He says, problematizing everything reminds me of the blood of the creatures in the alien movies. Now I haven't seen those. Me either. <laughs> it turn it burns through mm -hmm. everything. Why don't Christians see that it will burn through Christian doctrine too? And uh. I'm wondering, I, I, cause I, I've seen some tweets to this effect um, coming out of some of the more progressive uh, evangelical conferences of, Hey, maybe we need to rethink, the, Everything. the certain doctrines that have yeah. been core to our faith. Yeah. Why don't evangelicals see that? I think, I mean, Monique could probably answer you better. I think sometimes, I said, let me put it this way. I think the vast majority of, of evangelicals that I've talked to, I mean, I mean, true conservative evangelicals, you, you know, share traditional Christian beliefs about everything. You know, race, I mean, not race, sorry. Uh, we'll get into the race, the biblical, Biblical ideas about race later. Obviously, I would just say that there's there, race is a social construct. Actually, critical race theory gets that right. Critical race theorists agree that race is a social construct. That's 100% true. So that we're, we're in agreement there. Uh, but things like gender, sexuality, um, that so evangelicals who hold traditional beliefs about, say, gender and sexuality, they they don't see the connection between, say, critical race theory and these claims about gender and sexuality. They don't, they don't think there's a connection. They think, well, I'll, I'll embrace critical race theory or maybe just its terminology because it is trying to address a, a real problem, racism, which is an actual sin, and it is. So we'll just we'll embrace this, just this one facet of critical theory. And they often do that without actually reading anything written by critical race theorists. So they'll read like a book or two and they'll assume that, well, okay, this, I, or, or, or even worse, they'll hear the jargon. They'll just repeat phrases like white fragility or white privilege. And they'll say, okay, that sounds hip. It sounds cool. And, and they'll filter that terminology through their Christian worldview and sometimes even use it incorrectly because they're trying to make it fit with their theology. But we're, so I think that happens a ton, lots. 
what I'm trying to get people to see is that you don't know what you're embracing. Like you think that you've got your, you know, you're, you're, you're reaching into this, you know, this bag full of what you think is just candy and you're just pulling it out and just stick it in your mouth. And you're right. There's like, there's one or two Skittles in there, but actually the, the, the majority of the, 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 the things you're pulling out are, are poison pills and you're just stuffing it in your mouth. And so you, 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 you need to know what is actually behind these terms, what is the theoretical underpinnings of these ideas before you embrace them. And that's what I'm trying to do with all of my writing and my, Pat and I have written a lot of articles and done book reviews. We're just trying to show people what these ideas are actually rooted in. And then, then beyond that, how they end up inevitably conflicting with basic Christian beliefs. But I, I, I'll, to answer Jeremy's question, I think there's just a lot of genuine ignorance, and that's not pejorative. I think people, like, two years ago, I would have had no idea what, what these ideas were coming from, what they meant, right? So it takes just some, some work to, to learn these things, and pastors are busy, they don't have time. And again, I think, like Monique can speak to this, but they're concerned with things like racism and sexism and poverty and injustice that we, as Christians, ought to be concerned about. We hear that language and we assume they must be talking about the same things, and we don't find out until much later that they've really redefined a lot of these terms. I'm fanning. Come on, come on through. Monique, come on through. Yes. Oh, oh, we was in the black church. Boy, I I, I had to fan you. Yes, we would fan you. Yes, we would. Oh, my goodness. It's so true. Like, it just resonates so much. Um, No one wants to be racist. No one wants to be racist. And so because they don't want to be racist, they will adopt different frameworks and things that help to promote terms that will make them not racist because they don't want to be racist. And we've said this before. It's like, so I'm going to be anti-racist, but you don't really understand that being anti-racist means all these other things. And, um, I say it's kind of like going down into culture and trying to borrow from culture when we've been called to be the city on the hill. I was having a a conversation with a pastor um, last weekend and he and I love this pastor. And he was with all of his sincerity. First of all, he is one of the most sincere people that I've met. And he was saying, you know, I really want to care for the people who are going through hard things like divorce and mourning, you know, spouses and grief and things like that. Like, I don't really have a lot of time to sit and talk about race. And I don't understand why I even need to like, no, we're not racist. Like, but he, and he wants to do good, but I'm like, you don't understand. Like if, if you just decide that you're not going to be racist, it's so easy for these things to creep in because you don't understand what you're accepting. You don't understand the jargon and the terms and part of what um, I appreciate about you and Pat and even what I seek to do and Krista seeks to do is to give some explanation and some some layman's terms to what is happening here so that people can understand, no, this is not right. This is a different worldview. When Christians accept critical race theory, it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus and all of these things that need to be done so that I cannot be racist. And in the end, nothing that if I'm white, nothing that I do is really going to work anyway. And when someone finally says, well, you know, you can come to the barbecue because you know enough, you are anti-racist enough. 
eventually the person who thinks that I'm not just makes all of that crash down. And it's back to this very much like work ethic, this work, Jesus plus the work of anti-racism, Jesus plus the work of speaking out against the poor, Jesus plus, there's always a plus because something is always being problematized. Yeah, this is a really, this is funny. So that article about Ken is written on the AMS blog by a mathematician. Uh, and the title was, you know, can mathematics be anti-racist? And the guy's arguing, yes, we need to have an anti-racist mathematics education system. And he, it is, it's all super woke. You know, he's, he's, he references Paulo Freire and, and he's completely saying, we're going to, the guy, the author himself is gender non-binary. He's, you know, he's very, very much in the, at the forefront of social justice, arguing in this article that we need to have an anti-racist mathematics, right? This, uh, so I read the article. I was like, this is, there's some pretty amazing quotes in it, but this is the interesting thing. There's an update, just a few, uh, when is it? Yeah, there's an updated article that came later. The article mm-hmm. published uh, on January 2nd, but then on January 31st, there's an update from the author. And you're like, what's he going to, what, what did he say? And he said, this is what the update says. Uh, three weeks later, he says, I readily acknowledge the erasure and anti-black racism perpetuated consciously and unconsciously by non-black people. He's Asian, by the way, it looks like, I can't tell. He's, I don't think he's not black. He, he acknowledges the erasure and anti-black racism perpetrated unconsciously and unconsciously by non-black people such as myself, including in science and math, profiting off the work and labor of black people. I'm willing to be called out on that. I mean, this guy is writing an article all about how to make mathematics anti-racist. And now he has to add an addendum saying, I am also racist. I perpetuate oppression. I profit off the work and labor of black people. Now, why did he do that? It's kind of strange. Listen to this. It was also brought to my attention. Oh, so someone brought this to his attention that he didn't sufficiently prostrate himself for whoever. I don't know who his audience was. But it was also brought to my attention that there are other people, such as Danielle and Lee, Stephanie Page, Rachelle Burks, and Jedida Isler, too, who are doing similar work in other realms of science. So in other words, it sounds like, I looked for on Twitter, he's not on Twitter, someone must have emailed him and said, you only cite or you don't cite enough people of color in your article about anti-racism, and, and then he has to apologize profusely for not being sufficiently anti-racist in his article about how we need to be anti-racist. So and it's just, it's, I'm just, no, that's only one, it's only one of the issues, you know, it's, I, I'm not saying that the primary problem isn't even that there's this treadmill of never ending apology and you're never woken up. It's, that's not even the primary problem. The other deeper issues are things like you, you can't adopt, there, there's, there's so many problems with critical race theory as an ideology uh, that I just, you have to look at my blog and, and see some of them. But the point is people don't know what they're getting into. Uh, and I would just really caution people that before you start using these terms and calling yourself an anti-racist, I just would encourage you to read some of these books that again, written by critical theorists like white fragility um, before you sign up to anything. Well, that kind of brings us to a question um, to sort of, uh, you know, round this out is talking to Christians uh, you're kind of giving some words of caution there about 
about critical theory and and its influence or impact in evangelicalism, what would you say to somebody? Because Monique and I get this question a lot is, well, can't Christians kind of redeem some aspects of critical theory? Maybe some of those things we could actually use in a positive way in the church. How, how would you respond to that? Is critical theory just something we should keep completely separate from our faith? understand it, look at it, know what the culture is doing, but it's something other than our faith or there are aspects of it that we can redeem or reuse. Right. So the thing is, and this is, was a lot of the discussion around resolution nine in the SBC. So resolution nine, in the SBC, which I supported and I still support it, it drew a distinction between say, using some of the tools and analyses of, that are in critical race theory, as opposed to embracing the ideology of critical race theory. So let me give an example of this. So the point is, that even though I'm obviously very, I'm really warning and sending the alarm bell on critical race theory as an ideology, it's not to say there's nothing in it that's valuable. And let me give you a simple example. Critical race theorists point out that policies can be, um, this is actually, this is one of the hallmark themes. Policies can be explicitly and ostensibly colorblind and racially neutral and can still actually be racist in the traditional sense. They give an example of that. Uh, I think it was 1967, 1968, I'm not sure. But there's a Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court decided that this company, a Duke Power company, was, was discriminating against blacks. Now, how'd they do that? Well, it turns out that the Civil Rights Act had just passed and said, you can't discriminate against people because of their race. And before that time, they had literally been saying, Duke Power had said, blacks can't have these jobs, period. So the law changes and now Duke Power can't do that anymore. So instead, they suddenly create a test, an aptitude test for these jobs which did not exist before. And lo and behold, no blacks could pass the test. Now, the Supreme Court rightly realized, look, you can't do that here. You're just trying to get around the letter of the law while trying to keep on discriminating against blacks. It's so clear that's illegal. And so the Supreme Court rightly said that is just a hidden form of racism, even though on the surface, all you're doing is creating these race neutral tests. So that's an example of how critical race theorists will point that out and say, look, just because you claim to be doing things in a colorblind way doesn't mean that, A, you can't be actually trying to do racist things, A, A, or B, your policies might unintentionally harm people of color. Now, there's a lot to be said there about, well, how do you define racism in that case? Like, what if you accidentally do something that would, that would harm people of color? Is that still racism? It's a long discussion there. But the point is, churches can, can think about that legitimately. That's not, that's not it's sinful. For, it, what, for example, here's an example I give that I think is great. Our church was thinking, has been thinking about how we can better reach people of color. Um, we're, we're a predominantly white church. We have a, it's like we're like 20, 21 percent people of color. So we're not all. I'm not. I'm not white. Um, but the point is, we're trying to say how can we better reach our community because our community, we, we're our church is in the Raleigh Durham area. It's it's much more than 20 percent. Um, it's non-white. So how can we do better? So one change that we made was that although our worship music is so largely quote unquote white, you know, contemporary Christian worship music, but we tried to include songs that are like 
gospel, like black gospel songs. And I, they're great. I love them. They're great theology. Um, in the lobby between services, we play black gospel music. Now, now why? You know, do, do all black people like gospel music? No, of course not, right? But it's, it's one way we can say, look, maybe people are coming into our church, looking around and being like, man, there are a lot of white people here and they're playing Chris Tomlin songs. Maybe I don't belong. Here's a simple way we can make people feel more comfortable, right? That's a, and then we're not, not saying we're not trying to be racist. We're not trying to exclude people. But here's a way we can better serve our community. That is totally good and godly and legitimate. And that's a way in which critical race theory, the ideas can be used fruitfully. Well, even though we have to be very careful and say, hey, but wait a minute, there are some basic foundational ideas that are t- totally wrong. We have to reject with both hands. Yes. Y'all be listening to Karen Clark Shear. Yes. <laughs> I, I know. Fred Hammond. Yes. We mm. have we have a couple more comments, oh. Neil, before we let you go. Um, sure. uh, Laura, one of our frequent viewers, says she's curious to know how you use your knowledge in critical theory to teach your children about this um, and and contrasting it to the Christian worldview. Yeah, I mean, I just teach them explicitly what they get right and what they get wrong. So I'll say things like, I mean, we talk a lot about racism, actual racism, slavery, the civil rights movement. Um, I mean, they're astonished that we do, uh, we do, we homeschool through classical conversations. And the funny thing is that historically, I think it's probably true that a lot of homeschooling and private schooling in our state, in North Carolina, was motivated by a desire to segregate the kids. So people, when segregation, when desegregation happened, a lot of white people did pull their kids out of public schools and try to cloister them in sort of more white communities. But ironically, our homeschool co-op is like, I don't know, I tried to count it the other day, but it's, it's, got, it's probably like 40% non-white. Um, like my, my own class that I teach is like, it's, it's, a, it's three kids are black, my son is a quarter Indian, uh, and so there's some white kids, but it's a very diverse. But the point is, when I told my kids that, like, and their grandfather's Indian, when I talked about to them about racism and, and segregation and slavery, they were just flabbergasted. And I, last year, I talked to my, my, my class about it when they were, again, they were black students in the class. And I said, I said, guys, think about this. 50 years ago, our class wouldn't exist. In fact, I couldn't be your teacher, potentially. And I started getting teary-eyed. I was like, this is so, it's so wonderful that we've come to realize what a sin against God this is, this racism is. And so I teach my kids. I don't hide it from them. But I also at the same time say, but here's what they get wrong. Here's what, I, and again, they're, they're only, the, my oldest is 10, although my oldest will give you a, <laughs> I asked him one day, Adrian, what's critical theory? And he gave me this like wonderful, like paragraph long abstract about critical. I was like, okay, you've been listening. Um, but it, you can do it. You can teach them about racism and how horrendous it is and also how critical race theory and critical theory just don't get it right. We got one more question here from Jeremy. Um, he says one of the things he's noticed about critical race theory in college circles is that it seems to change the character and attitude of those who fall into it. Um, and I'm, I think that Jeremy is a guy who's written me before who said he's he's works with the youth in his church. And he noticed that a number of them who went off to college, like their personalities changed Mm -hmm. um, after they got kind of into this stream. Uh, He says he's never seen 
critical theory make a person into a better or I think what he means like a nicer person. I've seen the same happen in Christians. I know. Have you seen the same? So have I seen it? Um, I'm maybe a little bit. It's hard to always tell. What I will say is that there is a reason for that. So let me quickly say this. Um, critical race theorists and, and others as well, but they they really um, dislike what's called respectability politics. So this is a big contrast between, say, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King and other, and other John Perkins, other people were leaders in that. They really tried to project an attitude of kindness, compassion, love. That was, King was huge about this love ethic driving his movement. Uh, critical race theorists distance themselves from the civil rights movement, civil rights uh, for various reasons. But one of the things they will sometimes say is that the idea that we have to sort of, that, that blacks have to play nice and be respectable, that's actually a manifestation of whiteness. And that actually, this actually comes more from black feminism, people like Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde. But they'll talk about how, you know, rage and anger towards oppressive systems is, can fuel activism. And so that's number one. So there's, there's, there's a theoretical justification for saying, no, if you, if, you, if you go to a critical race theorist and say you're they're acting awfully angry right now, you know, even if they are, they, they can write that off as saying, well, you're being, yeah, that's, a, that's a manifestation of white fragility. Yep. So D'Angelo talks about how whites try to control people of color. And one of the ways they do that is by saying, oh, calm down, stop being so angry. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that's, that's possible. You could, be, you could be trying to control people by saying, oh, you're being irrational and emotional. On the other hand, some people are angry and too emotional and really nasty. And so there's no, but there's no mechanism to correct for that and say, well, maybe, they're, maybe they're, they really are being nasty. That's number one. But number two, um, remember that critical race theory and critical theory in general is trying to unearth systems of oppression. So they take it for granted that people to start out and, you know, with this naive view that, you know, yeah, there's injustice in the world, but, you know, we're basically a just society. We're basically, and there is injustice, it's, it's real and it's bad, but we're basically a society that's, that's built on good principles, at least, good ideals. Critical race theory, critical theory challenges that and undermines that idea and says, no, actually, you are being oppressed right now and you don't know it in all kinds of ways. And so they are, they, they are trying to expose the ways in which you are being oppressed right now because of your race, class, gender, sexuality, and a host of other factors. If you feed people with a constant diet of being, seeing themselves as being oppressed, it's no wonder that they come back feeling jumpy. And, and looking for oppression under every rock and tree. And so that's so one, they problematize civility and kindness and niceness. And two, they seek to find ways in which they're being oppressed. And that can have a deleterious effect on your personality. So I, I wouldn't say it happens all the time, but I think, I, yeah, it does happen. And, and, and I get it. I think it happens on both sides. Obviously, critical theory does that, but also, you know, our politics is terribly partisan right now. And there are plenty of nasty conservatives out there who just want to just own the libs and, and crush people who disagree with them. So you can't, you can't nasty from things other than critical. You get, you're nasty because you're a human being who's a sinner, right? And so I'm not laying, laying 
hatred and nastiness at the feet of critical theory. It's a problem because we're sinners. But I'm just pointing out that there is a theoretical explanation for why that might be more prevalent. Wow, this is so good. And I could literally sit here and talk the rest of the night about this. <laughs> yeah, so could I. <laughs> but unfortunately, we are coming to, to the end of our talk. I really don't want this to be. I just don't. <laughs> Um, but thank you so much. I appreciate, we appreciate your wisdom and your time. Thanks for coming out and giving us some info about how math can be seen as being racist. Um, and definitely the, the information on how we as Christians should be responding to critical race theory and being wary of, you know, this coming into evangelicalism. Thank you so much, Neil. We really appreciate your time and just being in the conversation with us. Thank you so much. And I want to encourage everyone to follow Neil on Twitter and follow his blog and his website. He has hugely important uh, book reviews and blog posts there. Yeah, so. and we'll have um, things posted in our show notes. You can find him online at shindviapologetics.com. Um yeah. yeah. Join the conversation. Find out more information. He has a ton of response papers to books like White Fragility and the Just um, Just Mercy movie. And, you know, it's it's good. There's a lot of good stuff there. Thanks for doing Great. the work. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so you. much, Neil. I appreciate it. Yeah. Bye. 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 OK. I didn't want it to end. I know. I did it was good. It was really good. It's so much like there's so much information. There's so much yeah. to learn and to be processed in all of it. And it goes by quick in an well, hour. Hopefully it would gave people got them a little further down the road in understanding critical theory. And the people will start having conversations with their kids about these things. Yeah. And they're starting to feel equipped and trained to notice the words to begin to differentiate between Christianity and critical theory. Um, and we're going to keep having videos. We're going to have a new one coming out this week on intersectionality. Yeah. And, using some of Neil's work. Yeah. yeah. So people keep watching, subscribe to the YouTube channel uh, at theology mom. And there's the camera I'm looking at and uh, follow us on social media and Twitter and all the things, all show. the things. So we want to thank you so much for watching and be sure to click on that share button and share this with a friend um, and send us some feedback. Uh, tell us what you're learning yeah. and how these programs are blessing you and equipping you as a parent and as a Christian, as a Christian leader and a pastor. And we want to thank all of you for all that you do to sow into the lives of people around you. Our show is really designed. We want to, Talk to everyday people in everyday language to help equip and train them uh, and raise them up in the Christian worldview. So, yeah, feel free to email us att livestream. I'm sorry. Yes, it is att livestream at gmail.com. I got caught on something else. Yeah. Yes, att livestream at gmail.com. Email us, we'll respond, and we look forward to hearing from you. Can we get a round of applause for Abby? Yes, yes. Doing the whole show by herself. So awesome. She did great. All right, you guys have a good night. See you next week. God bless.
Let's <laughs> go.